0: Doctor Claire, I have a question for you. Yeah, do you th- do you think that you're an ethical person, a moral person, an ethically upright person?
1: Mm. Well, <laughs> are you gonna answer when I'm done? Oh, it's hard, you Maybe. know. As as Christians, is kind of. Uh, Yes and no. That's not what you want. You know, it's (laughs) not what you want. I don't want anything. It it was just a question. It's just an innocent question. Because
2: he is an ethicist. I remember like when I was in grad school and people would be like, you know how they say like doctors are the worst you know patients or whatever and they would say like you know ethicists Uh,
1: Uh. why am i so interested in the right (laughs) (laughs) why am I so interested in the nuance of the bad yeah no (laughs) what does it really mean to
0: practice the good life and so on i you know it's weird i was talking to somebody just the other day and they were asking me like well why don't you just do this and i was like well you know why because i know how absolutely ethically gross i am and where (laughs) i would take that (laughs) whatever the thing was we were talking about so I mean, it sounds like faux humility to say that, but I think you can look in it. You can look at your own life, and you can give a very dark analysis of yourself, right?
1: Totally, and I, I mean, it's, we'll get into it, and we talked about it this past week. But you know, the Bible is—it's not contradictory, but it's complex. Jesus is mm. telling us, like, be perfect, morally upright, like your father in heaven, and then Paul's like. Yeah, all the things i want to do i don't do any of those mm-hmm. things the stuff i don't want to do that's what i do pretty much all the time you know <laughs> how do you square all this
0: welcome to the i need to know yes. more podcast for this week we are back with dr joseph claire on the topic we're calling it practice we called it practice because we thought there are these other materials in the New Testament too, not just the writings of Paul, mm-hmm. not just the letters, not not the Gospels, mm-hmm. not the the Apocalypse, the last book, Revelation. But like, what are these other materials? And many of these materials, though not all of them, are oriented around very practical aspects of Christian living, the books of John, the book of James. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, uh, we, we gave it a crack. Dr. Clare, thanks for your lecture this week. And I, 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 how was it for you to try to organize these kind of like really disparate materials? Like, was there an organization that... That that appeared to you right away, or did it just seem like a, a potpourri of things? Or
1: yeah, I think I thought it was. I was grateful to have the task. I don't think about these letters enough. I mean, Paul looms so large, you know, mm-hmm. the letters of Paul. Oh, wow. You know, Dr. Edwards got the really good one, so thanks for giving me the scraps. And I, uh, <laughs> no, I mean these these letters are overlooked. I think James, First, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John. There's some powerful stuff in stuff in here, and I, I tried to say it in the lecture. I don't know if it was clear enough, but The beauty of the letter in the Bible is that it's very personal. It's Mm. two people. It's maybe not as personal as the individual email to you in your inbox in the modern world, but it was written to a group of people with concerns and struggles Mm -hmm. and things that were going on. And it's, that's the right genre. We were talking about genre, you know, earlier in the semester. This is another genre, the letter. It's a big part of the Bible, big part of the New Testament. And and here you get these people and you're kind of left as a reader on the outside to try to read between the lines sometimes Mm -hmm. and go, what were the struggles going on? Why was he talking about love so much? Or why was he talking about being kind to the poor in your midst? You know, Mm -hmm. I, it seems like, I mean, as as
0: someone who does theology and ethics, as you do, I just well, actually, can we back up? How did you get interested in ethics? Was it just like a thing? I mean, there's these these hot button issues we deal with culturally, you know, like physician assisted suicide and abortion, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. we can was it was it hot button issues like that that got you into it, or was there some other some other way?
1: Yeah, I how did I get into it? Hmm. That's a good question. (laughs) As far as an academic field, I ran into it in seminary. I had this great theological ethics professor, Stanley Hauerwas, really famous American theologian and ethicist. And I, I think it wasn't really an intellectual deal. I had wondered for a long time what the application and consequences of my Christian faith were for the way I lived my life, the where the Place I bought my clothes who I voted for in the election who like how does Christian faith square with all those because I will say confession there wasn't much conflict between what I thought of as my Christian faith growing up and through the years and how I lived my life in Mm. terms of Mm. who I might vote for or what I might buy and purchase or whether I might not eat meat or eat vegetables. It was just kind of like, there's this synonymity or whatever between being this American person and being a Christian. There was no rub. They were just the same. Like just
0: being a good American and living my happy life is the same as being a Christian. You were like, maybe, maybe Maybe not exactly.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. When did you like, what brought you to that? To that? that Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's the, I think, um, during, during my time, in seminary 2002, 2003 and four, my closest buddy, Joshua, um, who I had gone to undergrad with and he had gone into the military and, um, was in Iraq. So this is operation, um, uh, infinite freedom and just going to Iraq in 2004. He ends up as, um, an army interrogator and linguist. Mm -hmm. He was really good with Arabic in Abu Ghraib, the famous prison where there were some real like preaches of conduct, misconduct. And they're infractions of like human rights and respect for human dignity. And he actually, out of that, had the boldness and courage because of his love for Jesus to become a conscientious objector. That's wow. what it's called, where you actually object to. He didn't object to all of the military or even the US presence in Iraq, but he objected to what he was being asked to do as an interrogator and wow. was given honorable discharge and went on to become a playwright and moved back home to Iowa. It was through his relationship where for the first time I was like, oh, like following Jesus and imitating Jesus might put you in conflict with what you are being asked to do as like your obligations to your country or to the state or to your family or something like that. And so I think it was through his friendship. I just sort of was like, oh. Wow. Wow.
2: Um. Wow. When you were preparing for this lecture, like how... How do these particular passages of scripture like inform mm-hmm. your your own ethical development right now?
1: Yep, yep. I I, I think it's worth looking at First John, mm. which we spent a little bit of time within the lecture. First John four. There's that famous line. It comes um, in the middle of verse sixteen and following. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Hmm. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from his, him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. So mm. a couple of things that are foundational for me. I mean, Jesus's ethic, the ethic of the Bible is Mm -hmm. an ethic of love. And so when Jesus was asked, you know, in the gospels, like, what's the summary of the Old Testament? He's like, it's loving God with everything you have and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I think what dawned on me as I've, I've studied more and more about ethics is that our culture probably hears love as the basis of ethics and says, yeah, I'm all right with that. All you need is love, you know, turn up the Beatles and we're good. But of course, the question is, what's the concrete content of the ethics of love? What does love look like in practice? And first John, which is very much echoing of the gospel of John is love looks like Jesus Christ and especially looks like him when he lays down his life and sacrifice for other people. So there's this, this self giving, this dying to oneself, this putting the good and interests of others above yourself there's looking to Jesus. Jesus gives lots of great stories in his own teaching about what love looks like. The Good Samaritan is a famous parable mm-hmm. about this person who goes out of their way to care for and love the least of these. The person who's in the ditch on the side of the road has been passed by by everyone else. And so I think the the idea is how do you take a concept like love and fill it with concrete content so you actually mm. imagine what it looks like right. and what, what does it look like it looks a lot like jesus um it looks the way it looks like the way he healed and touched people who were leprous or outside and distant so that that sticks out to me and i think the other thing that sticks out there too and i said in the lecture is here john says hey, you haven't seen God, God's invisible, God's mysterious, God's in heaven. You have seen other people, Mm. other human beings. So if you want to love God, in a sense, you got to love the people right around you. You can love your neighbor and be loving God. There's like a unity mysteriously between those two Mm. commands to love God and neighbor. What do you make of this stuff? I mean, you brought up the idea when Jesus says, I think it's
0: in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Be perfect for your father in heaven Mm. is perfect. And Mm -hmm. here there there was that language even um, in what you were just reading, just very like, very strong language, Mm -hmm, right? Like mm -hmm. you say you worship God, but if you don't do this, you don't. And I look at myself right away and I'm like, Oh, well I don't love my Mm. brother or my sister. And I'm like, wait, man, it's like, how do you interpret something like be perfect or like do this stuff? Do you just see it very simply as like, yeah, it's calling us to a better place or is it like, is it like really judging us like in the here and now? Cause I could see an interpretation of it where you say, yeah, Jesus said be perfect, but he doesn't, he knows our failings, you know, <laughs> he knows that I am not perfect and therefore I will be, you know, maybe like 8% perfect. Yeah, and exactly. he knows that we are but grass to quote the psalmist. Exactly. Or do you think in these kind of passages ethically, we are to understand that the author is actually calling us to like a perfect life or whatever mm-hmm. here, John, this author of first John is saying,
1: yeah. Wow. I mean, that's the deep water of the New Testament. It's it's a polyphony, a mixture of voices in the New Testament. It's not mm-hmm. a cacophony, but it comes together in this mysterious sweetness. And that is the New Testament is telling us, calling us to a higher life, a better you, like do better. Don't just say, don't get yourself off the hook by cheap grace. Like, Oh, I'm, I'm 8% perfect. Or I, I don't love people very often. Like hold yourself to account. And on the other hand, there's this strong voice, as as we talked about in in Paul's letters, of saying, "You're fa- you're falling short. You're mm-hmm. everybody's fallen short." Like the like we said, Paul says the things I want to do, I don't do. I'm I'm screwed. I have this like inner disease of my I- at the level of my human nature. So how do you hold those two things together? And I think the way I've been reading it is that we we do um, a great disservice to ourselves if we read the new testament as a as a list of moral instructions what it's actually offering us is an invitation to a deeper way of life in which christ himself begins to live in us and that his love begins to live out of us so this is this this profound mysterious idea that By faith, recognizing how fallen short and far off you are and recognizing you are loved in that and receiving the grace of Christ. Christ is in you. Actually, Mm. it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you, as Paul says, and that through his spirit, then we're invited into a deeper moral life. So again, that can kind of sound like a cheesy sort of like, well, it's not me. It's this other spirit. It's Christ living through me. But if you've actually been helped at the level of your will by grace, by this mysterious sort of source of strength in God, and you know, it's not been entirely up to you, what you've been able to do when you've loved or reached out or self-sacrifice, you start to know that ethics is more about being overshadowed um, and empowered than it is about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps.
2: One of the things that I was struck by when you were reading that passage, and I was following along with you, um, reading with you um, in John, is the, the contrast between love and hate mm, and mm-hmm. So I have a four-year-old right now, and he is, um, I, I think I offhandedly said, oh, I hate that stuff. And my four-year-old, he's very rule-oriented because he's an oldest. And he looked at me and he said, mommy, hate is a very strong word. <laughs> um, and in a very, like, disapproving tone. Um, and I, I was thinking about how, like, hate as a kind of a, a public concept mm-hmm. is means a lot of different things now. Mm-hmm. And the scriptures are taught, like, make it a contrast between love and hate. Hmm. And I wonder if you could reflect on what it means to like, w- what hate is mm-hmm. in this and, and what is, how is love the response yep. um, to that, that, that cures that, I guess maybe cure is not the right word, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. I think uh, I'd love to hear your all thoughts too. I think that hate as it's being used in first John four is this kind of, deep-seated vice in the New Testament where you're not just disapproving of someone's behavior of them, but you're wishing them out of existence. It's Mm -hmm. like, I block you out. Everything you stand for, you're other, you're gone. And Lord knows how many times have you felt that feeling? Like that's how you do feel in regard to somebody. And there might be some even like virtuous version of that kind of righteous indignation towards something that's evil or someone that's evil. But I think the way it's being played out, In our current moment at least the way I experience it and why we so enjoy hate hate radio Mm. being a hater is that it actually includes the really fatal error of not seeing yourself in that other person Mm. actually thinking of them as entirely other is entirely something you aren't or couldn't be couldn't fathom being that Mm. kind of person and that's a kind of black and white bifurcated view of human nature of good and evil of us and them that i think leads to some of the polarizing sort of stuff mm. we're in you know true or false in your opinion dr Claire?
0: i okay true or false if i am not living in the world as a christian in open and obvious rebellion to some of what is happening in the world politically and economically and so on like you think if you read the book of james like And if it's not like, and if I'm not living almost like a, almost honestly, like a weirdo in the world, (laughs) I'm probably not a Christian in the biblical sense that these letters talk about.
1: Wow. Yeah. Wow. Do you think that's true
0: or do you think that's false or is it not like?
1: I think it could be true. uh, Partially true. I I say it's true in the sense that those most devoted to this vision of love and of imitation of Christ through history have been seen as weirdos. I mean, we have this great cast of characters throughout time. St. Francis of Assisi is famously one. They live so deeply in relationship with Christ. They start imitating his like homelessness and like lack right. of possessions and lack of addiction to having money and pleasure. And and that puts you at odds. But here's how I've been thinking about it lately, Dr. Doak is, um, our lives are only intelligible in terms of the story that we find ourselves in. So that's like a deep insight in moral philosophy from this guy, Alasdair McIntyre teaches at Notre Dame, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. He says character and ethics is only intelligible in terms of the story you live inside. So when someone does something like when you give some bread to a beggar or you go up on a mountaintop, Those things are meaningless unless, you know, like what the arc of the story Mm. that the actions being performed into. And that's true of our lives, like as a whole, especially our moral lives. And so I want to live in such a way that my life is intelligible within the story of God, what God has been doing from creation, from the fall of humankind, from the redemption of things in Christ to the consummation of things at the end. And so I want to live in such a way that I do things That would be unintelligible to the world unless they knew what story I'm living in. So take someone, for example, like Mother Teresa of Calcutta. We love her. If you know about her, she's this Catholic nun who lived her life serving um, and caring for those just in the slums in Calcutta. She did those things because she was compelled by this ethic of love in first John. She was compelled by the dignity of every human being who was made in the image of God. She was compelled um, to live faithfully because she hoped that God would redeem all things at the end. Her life invited the question to which only Jesus, only that story is the answer. Like her life is unintelligible. It's like, why else? She was clearly smart, well-educated, and all this stuff, but she went and from one angle, like wasted her life, mm. caring for people for whom there was no hope. There was no social reformation and big change. She was just caring for the suffering. Her life was only intelligible in that story and invites the question for which only Jesus is the answer. And I fear, honestly, that not much of my life Uh, is unintelligible to the world. I don't know that that much of my life does invite the question for which only Jesus is the answer.
2: I have a question for both of you based on that, which is, and it's going to be really uncomfortable for you all. So get ready, (laughs) students, to see your professors nervous. What is the most christian act by that definition Mm -hmm. like something that Mm -hmm. would not be intelligible Mm -hmm. to outsiders um those outside the story of of the christian life what is the most christian act that you have done
1: wow whoa
2: i thought about asking what's the most non-christian act but then i was like (laughs) no we can't talk about that
0: i will okay I will say the first thing that comes to my mind, and I will admit right away that I don't actually know that it falls into the category Dr. Claire just described. Mm. (laughs) That is to say something that would be because I I think we could go much deeper on this question of like, what is something that only Jesus could explain? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Only Jesus could explain because Mm -hmm. it's like. Even like Mother Teresa, like there's an analysis you can make there, which, which is to say, there have been Buddhist monks mm-hmm. and other people who have devoted sure. their lives to that kind of stuff too. So, with that caveat, and it's a major caveat. Sure. I will say, I will say, um, I will say this, which is, uh, it's it feels so pathetic, actually, now that I'm thinking of it.
2: I knew it would make both of you <laughs> feel so. You, so you uncomfortable. are
0: so right. Uh, so uh, uncomfortable. I will bad. say this. I will say this. I, in my doctoral program. And this is something that I started around the year 2009 when my first daughter was born and it's continued to the year 2020. So it's, it's, it's something of an ongoing thing. Maybe it's the thing I just feel most morally proud of. And so this is the best, this is the most <laughs> grasping thing I can do <laughs> when we, when my wife became pregnant with her for other oldest daughter, I just, it's like right away. There was just like a knowledge in my mind. I don't know if it came to my gut. I don't know where it came, but mm-hmm. just like that just said my wife's career. And she's a therapist, mental health therapist. Mm-hmm. Is just so important and the work that she's doing with people, work that I actually couldn't do and don't do. Mm. Like I, I'm a she's terrible. She's th-
2: very good. She, yeah, she's not even my therapist, but I, you know, yeah. I feel like I could trust yeah. her. Dr. Payne
0: and my <laughs> wife are friends. Like they, she have Dr. Any Claire knows my wife too. Yeah, I, I know, could right? use one. So she's the best. I just saw that and I just was like, there was a sense in seeing her work that she's done with people. Mm. And I'm just like, people with in drug addiction, teenagers, violence, all kinds of stuff. Mm. And I was like. I know I can't do that, but I can at least do something that would enable her to do that, which Mm. is to say I became a stay-at-home dad for two years. I wrote my whole dissertation as a stay-at-home dad.
2: With a little baby. With a
0: baby, an infant. Like nine to five, I I transformed myself into a maker of meals, laundry. Now, granted, some of that stuff, it feels selfish because I actually started to enjoy it. Mm. Like I liked the cooking and stuff like that. But that lifestyle of basically taking this like... And it's not a lifestyle that I think is right for everyone, by the way, or that I would... I think everyone has to do or I'm not setting myself up that way but it was particularly about empowering my wife like I thought if I just stay home with my, our kids a lot and then we had a second daughter once we moved here to Oregon that would be a way of like not promoting myself and to be honest like I could have gotten a lot more stuff done if I if I did not spend that time I could have probably I could have probably That's had a, a scary thought. at least another yeah, I book know, or I know. two <laughs> books or maybe I three. Know. And just stuff like that. If I had just really focused and I'm not saying even that I shouldn't have done that or that I know that even it's right. I'm just saying it was something I did because I was honestly, I think deepest in my soul. I was thinking about another person and I was Mm. thinking about the healing of people that she would work with. And for her, because my wife is a Christian, that actually came from a place of, Mm. you know, of faith in her. Mm. But that like living that life, like with my family, where I take this like active role and I like, I do a lot of our, you know, I just do a lot of stuff you know, it starts to sound self-righteous. I just do a lot of stuff that a lot of men and husbands and fathers don't do in terms of their household stuff, like Mm -hmm. the invisible labor that's often attributed Mm -hmm. to women. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of that in our house and my wife does this other, like just soul, sometimes soul crushing work Mm. of just taking this on. So I share that just in, or I share it kind of as a challenge to myself, even just to think, can that be explained in my life other than Jesus' influence? Or -hmm. is that something any like, you know, um, um, any righteous pagan, let's just say, mm-hmm. could actually mm-hmm. or would actually do. I honestly don't know the answer to that. And so I am squirming and I feel challenged to think about what is it actually in my life that only Jesus could explain. Mm-hmm. But okay, that was long enough. Dr. Claire, you got to.
1: Oh, <laughs> wow, man. <laughs> no, that was too wow. good. I, I, I don't have that. anything. That was I felt so, so stupid saying that. That was deep. No, it was I mean, it's is, is also challenging. I don't have anything grandiose. I think it's a bunch of very minute, small things. And the first thing that popped into mind was I interacted, this will sound weird and self-righteous, but I interacted with a student the other day and the student I had categorized, um, they are not someone who's studying in my major. They're not in my department. They have nothing to do with my world, but for some reason we'd interacted around campus on something. Mm. And I, the student is actually somewhat hard for me to interact with. It's not like the, I just, it's a challenging Mm. But this person has sought me out and the thought was just crossing my mind as I was looking at a really busy day and thinking I have a zillion reasons why this can just be zeroed out. This will get me nowhere. This has no advantage to me whatsoever to interact with this student. There's no, I can't put it on any resume builders. And the thought was like, yeah, exactly. That's what Christ has called you to do. Mm -hmm. Seek the good of that human being and what he's about and where he's going and think nothing else of how it fits into your day or your Mm -hmm. program so that I hope I do some things like that but I think I think one thing that the book of James and for second and third John are all emphasizing is that we need to live these ways because the coming of the Lord is near and that's something that you know depending on what kind of church you come mm-hmm. from and the second coming and the you know sort of um Rapture, it can get kind of confusing as you think about how the end times will unfold. But the one thing that is clear in these texts is not the timeline exactly of the end times, but that they all lived in expectation that Christ was coming again and that his full justice that they had glimpsed in his first coming was going to be unfolded and they were going to be a part of that. Therefore, be patient. Therefore, love mm-hmm. other people, therefore live in these certain ways, because this thing is unfolding like time is, is still mm-hmm. moving toward its target and its fulfillment in Christ. Like we're in the story. So I think that that would be the argument uh, to Dr. Doke's good point is there's lots of righteous pagans. There's lots of people that have reached down into the slums and tried to pick up another person for lots of reasons because they thought that's what justice required but Christianity is a story not just about moral values, but it's a story about a coming kingdom, which mm-hmm. has started coming in Christ's first coming, but is coming to its full culmination. And we've been like enlisted as like agents, soldiers, people, citizens who are living in, in a different kind of citizenship model, a different mm-hmm. ethics of citizenship mm-hmm. in the middle of this Ethics of citizenship mm-hmm. that we find ourselves right. in, you know?
0: Yeah. Dr. Payne, do you do you have do you have something to share in that category? Like what's what do you think Jesus well, could only explain in your life that, that's uh, happened or to you or that you've done?
2: I don't think I've lived a an exciting enough life to like, you know, I mean Mother Teresa, she's like she's up mean, there, you know, right? You know, oh, yeah. St. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Francis, those those folks like you know, the the story of the Christian tradition is so full of people who are just like <laughs> going to transcend anything that I could share. But I do think of there's there's one thing that I've done that I don't know if it would be explicable to other people only through like a Christian lens. But it's the only way that I've been able to make sense of it myself. Mm. So that's mm. I guess mm-hmm. I, I I don't think that I, I, I totally agree with you all. Like there are lots of people who are righteous, like who do just things that mm-hmm. are outside of. Right. Of uh, the Christian tradition. So it's like kind of a weird calculus trying to like evaluate. But this is the thing. There's one thing in my life that has only I've only been able to understand Mm -hmm. in a in a Christian way, which was um, there were two children came into my husband and I's life as Mm. uh, foster kids Mm. and caring for them felt it was like the most discouraging thing I've ever done in Mm, my life (laughs) because um, for a lot of different reasons, because there were wa- there were so many things working against these two two wonderful people, mm-hmm. beautiful, resilient people, in the form of like you know th- their parents had some their biological parents had some really serious problems and then there were like these systemic problems with mm-hmm. like how foster children are not valued in our like by our legal system and right, in, right. in our mm-hmm. society and and it was just like disastrous for me personally because mm-hmm. I grew up in like a very loving, household not perfect or anything but um and i i myself just was super angry mm. throughout the process and the only way that i was able to make sense of it was through like this weird line in a really obscure line in the christian creed which um talks about the descent of of jesus into hell mm. wow. and i remember just feeling like this is a hellish experience mm-hmm. like i'm caring for these children who are like being re re-victimized by the Mm -hmm. biological people in their lives and it just felt like what am I even doing this for and then you know I just felt like sorrow and anger and frustration and fear and all these kinds of things and the only way I could make sense of it was like Christians because I've lived such a privileged life Mm -hmm. like was through this idea of like oh Christians like the act of love involves suffering Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. people I i a lot of foster parents they hate it when people try and make them out to be saints because they're not they're just like regular people who are doing this for whatever reason right. um, but I think that the only way I could like get through the days was being like okay there's a part of what I'm supposed to do like the call to love it does involve like acts of suffering mm-hmm. and, and frustration and I think that that's something that is like not really well articulated or well understood in our particular American context like we don't we don't, cause I don't want my kids to suffer. Right. So I don't want to teach my children like, right. yeah, right. part of your life is like suffering. It's going <laughs> to yeah. be terrible, Horrible you know? Suffering yeah, so I think that right. that's yeah. like, and I don't want to say that to make me sound like a praiseworthy person as much as like, Oh, I started to understand like, yep. there's something about what I'm supposed to be doing that I'm not right. going to like, yeah, right. it's going to yep. be hard.
0: Yep. That's an amazing example. Or even just like the, the spiritual metaphor of just a, you know, of, of foster parenting or adopting and just mm. that metaphor that's used in the new Testament about how, how we're adopted and this family Mm -hmm. of God it's like
2: it's a hard and beautiful thing
0: yeah I wonder if as we close here in our last couple of minutes we could ask dr. Claire to reflect we didn't have time in this podcast like we often have to read a long stretch of text although dr. Claire read, read some of, of first John there we'll mm-hmm. count that as our text first John 4 but I wonder dr. Claire if you could just close this out just in the spirit of what we've been talking about by giving a, a quick little little reflection on a famous passage just in the book of James namely this passage about faith without works is dead mm. which tries to connect this question of like and this is in in the book of James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26, where the author has this famous passage saying, you know, yes, there's faith. Yes, there's works. Here's how they're related. You have to show, you have to show, you actually have have to do something in this world. Mm -hmm. Maybe close this out by saying, what sense do you make of that passage and how can, how can we go forward from here as a class just thinking about this?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to, to see in the Christian life that Faith includes action. Faith in God is something that will permeate and be expressed in the way you're treating other people, treating the world around you. I, I paired this passage in the lecture with Paul in Galatians 5, where he says, faith actually works itself out by love. So there's not, there's not an uh, antithesis between this idea of faith and works, but actually when you authentically have known yourself to be a sinner and to be forgiven and loved by God, It actually moves you into a new phase of wanting to be a forgiving, merciful, loving person. If you've known yourself as a recipient of God's generosity, it makes you want to go out and be generous in ways to other people. So I think that James and Paul are in accord on that. It's complex, obviously. But yeah, there's. I think sometimes we get in this mental game where we're like, "Do I believe it? Do I not believe it today? I believed it yesterday. I don't believe it anymore." Mm. And James actually gives you this beautiful litmus test: like, just look at your life, look at the way you're dealing with your roommate, wow. with your parents, yep. with the people on the street, and then you'll know if it's authentic faith. Don't get too lost in the mental manipulation. Um, and I think you know, to Doctor Payne, that's just a powerful word to end on: is that Christianity is often confused by us with our American. Achievement society, and in America, we can conv- we bring together morality and getting ahead. Being right. moral means getting ahead, going things going well for your life. Christianity links morality with being faithful to God, and that faithfulness doesn't always add up to a brighter, happier, more successful, more visible, recognized life. It's sometimes about this low, long slog of loving other people and and imitating uh, Jesus's own self-sacrificial love. So. That's a, that's a call to action that is, it's going to challenge you the full extent of your Christian life on this earth is if you want to follow him, you got to take up your cross and imitate that pattern of love.
0: Wow. Thank you, Dr. Claire, for joining us for this podcast. Thank
1: you guys. Fun. Yeah.
0: Mm